Thank you so much for being here tonight. My name is Anne Elgood, and I'm the Curator of Contemporary Art here at the Hirshhorn. And I want to welcome you to tonight's program, which is um, an artist talk in conjunction with the exhibition The Cinema Effect, Illusion, Reality, and the Moving Image, Realisms. And we have the privilege and honor of having Candy Sprites here to speak about her work. And um, many of you have heard this repeatedly, but I'll just mention it again, which is that Realisms is the second part of a two-part exhibition. And I just want to acknowledge my co-curators on the project. Um, Carrie Brower, our chief curator and acting director, and Kelly Gordon did the first part of the exhibition called Dreams, which hopefully many of you saw. Um, and then Kristen Heilman and I did Realisms. And now that I have the opportunity to just say this publicly, I just want to um, acknowledge Kristen because she's a great partner and it was a wonderful um, experience working on the show together. So I also want to thank St uh, Stephen and Heather Mnuchin Foundation for their support of the Meet the Artist series. And for tonight's program in particular, I also want to thank Zoe Myers, who's been a supporter for us t for tonight's program. A um, couple of notes on upcoming programs, so put these in your calendar. Tomorrow I will be doing a gallery talk at 1230 um, in the Realisms exhibition, so if you want to spend your whole week down at the Hirshhorn, please come back. Um, if you've had your fill, we have other things coming up later. On Sunday, June 29th at 6 p.m., we will um, have the culmination, the last installation of our very popular summer camp film series with a screening of 20 Million Miles to Earth, a 1957 film by Nathan Duran. So please come and see that and experience the wonder. And then on Friday, July 18th, we will have at 12.30 p.m. a program that's part of our In Conversation series. And it's uh, filmmakers Annabelle Park and Eric Byler, who are local, who will discuss their work with what they call interactive documentary with our associate curator, Kristen Heilman. So I'm going to introduce Candice and say a few things about her work and then really just turn it over to her, who can talk about her work probably much better than I can. Um, Candice was born in 1972 in Johannesburg, South Africa, and she currently lives and works in Berlin. She earned her BA in Fine Arts from the University of Witzwatersrand in South Africa in Johannesburg in 1993. She received an MA in Art History from the University of Chicago in 1995, a Master's of Philosophy in Art History from Columbia University in 1997, and completed the Whitney Independent Study Program, uh, also in 1997 in New York. And she was a doctoral candidate in art history at Columbia University from 98 to 2002. So as you can see, Candice is really an, uh, an art historian dressed up as an artist. And I think that um, in her talk tonight, you'll see some of the interests that um, really root her work in art history, particularly in relationship to Warhol. And I think it's kind of, if I'm repeating this anecdote correctly, Candy, she'll have to correct me if I'm not. But um, she was, during the time she was at Columbia, was also starting to be quite productive as a visual artist. And it was her advisor, Rosalind Krauss, who said, you know, you really should just drop out of school and become an artist because you're doing great and you don't want to teach anyway. So here we are lucky for that advice from the very, very intelligent Rosalind Krauss. Um, 
Candice has been exhibiting her work uh, actively for the last 10 years and has participated in many major exhibitions, including the Johannesburg, Sao Paulo, Istanbul, Guangzhou, Taipei, and Venice Biennales. She's participated in several artist residencies, including those at ArtPace in San Antonio, the Kunstler House, Bethenian International Artists in Residency Program in Berlin, and the IASPIS International Artist Studio Program in Stockholm, among others. She has many exhibitions. Some recent solo exhibitions were at the Castello di Rivoli in Turin, the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, those were both in 2005, the Baltic Center of Contemporary Art in Gateshead in 2006, and Muzak, 2006, and uh, Muzak in Leon, Spain in 2007. A few recent group exhibitions include Made in Germany at the Kunstverein Hanover, Star Power Museum as Body Electric at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver, and Seduction, a Theory Fiction Between the Real and the Possible at the Beijing Center for Creativity. And there are many others I could list. Um, a couple of upcoming uh, exhibitions that Candice will be doing that might be of interest to you is that she'll be included in the New Orleans Biennial, being curated by Dan Cameron that opens on November 1st of this year. And she's doing a solo exhibition with Yvonne Lambert in March of next year. So be sure to see that. It's the Yvonne Lambert in New York, not Paris. So it's nearby and you can see it. Um, in Candice's two-room installation, Mother and Father, which is included in Realisms, she extracts dialogue from characters in mainstream Hollywood tearjerker films, creating a new screenplay of sorts between well-known actors such as Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon as they express a range of stereotypical views about parenting. Hopefully most of you have seen the piece, um, and I'm sure that Candice will speak about it tonight. Uh, Candice's moving image works often utilize two particularly cinematic strategies. One, the appropriation of imagery from popular culture, usually Hollywood films or television footage such as MTV videos, and very laborious and aggressive editing of her found imagery. Through her immersive multi-channel room-sized video installations, Brights examines the kinds of messages popular media circulates and deconstructs the visual conventions of the film and television industries. Her works often explore the role of celebrity in our culture, and in several recent works, she's focused her attention on the relationship between celebrities and their fans, and the exuberance and devotion of fandom. For example, she's examined the phenomena behind specific pop stars in several recent video and photographic works, including Queen, a portrait of Madonna from 2005, which features headshots of 24 Italian Madonna fans who are the most, you know, um, excited of, of all in the world, the Italian Madonna fans, on a grid of monitors singing the entirety of her album, The Immaculate Collection, creating a chorus of enthusiastic acolytes. And one thing I find so important about Bright's work is the way in which she provi provides an example or serves as a role model to viewers to actively participate in the cultural production that surrounds them. Her work encourages an active engagement rather than a passive mode of viewing and encourages, uh, encourages us all to analyze, cr critique, deconstruct, and even reconstruct the moving images around us. So tonight, Candice will talk about mother and father as well as other video pieces and the intriguing questions they pose about the relationship between real life and mass media. And I also just want to mention on a personal note that it's a real honor for me to have Candice in the show and to introduce her tonight because she was in fact my first exhibition at the New Museum um, a few years ago. 
And so we got to work together then, and I have followed her work and been a huge fan of her work. I'm a fan of your work. Um, so it's really nice to have her in Washington with us. So please join me in welcoming Candy Sprites. Well, I'm embarrassed to get up after that. Thank you very much, Anne. Firstly, um, I, I do want to thank very much Anne and Kirsten for a, a magnificent exhibition, which I'm very thrilled to be a part of. I think that the exhibition is extremely intelligent in the way that it's composed. I think it's full of works which are challenging and which, for me as an artist, are inspiring. And I have to say that one is often quite ambivalent about the group exhibitions that one participates in. So thank you for giving me the chance, Kristen and Anne, to participate in a wonderful exhibition. Thank you to the Hirschhorn for the incredible hospitality. Um, as you can tell, I'm not an easy artist to install. Um, takes more than a nail in the wall to, to get one of those, one of those uh, works running. So I do appreciate um, the dedication of the entire Hirschhorn staff to a very perfect, very fine-tuned installation, which, um, uh, you know, it's unusual to see the work installed so beautifully, so thank you for that. Thank you also to Zoe Myers, who has um, contributed to this evening. Um, I thought about what I should talk about this evening, and um, it's an unusual luxury. Often when I talk about my work, the, the works themselves are not present, which always means that I have to do an awful sing and dance to get people to imagine what it is that I do, because invariably I have one channel and one beamer, and you know, it takes a little bit more than that often to describe the way that I work and the nature of my work. So I'm going to lean heavily on the luxury of knowing or at least hoping that uh, the majority of you who are here tonight uh, may have had the chance to already see Mother and Father, which means I don't have to go into that too much. And I thought what might be interesting, um, rather than focusing too particular, particularly on Mother and Father, because I'm going to assume that you've developed your own relationships to Mother and Father at this point, is to perhaps... Um, try to describe the, tra the trajectory, the path that led me to mother and father. How did I get to mother and father? What was going on before that? And where is it going? Where did I go after mother and father? So um, that's kind of the, the little task that I've set for myself. And in sort of thinking about where I would start this, uh, this little narrative, I thought that I may as well go all the way back to the beginning, to, to 1972, Johannesburg. <laughs> and, um, which, you know, interestingly enough, given what a digital artist I am, um, Johannesburg, South Africa in 1972 was a place which didn't seem like it had even the remotest possibility to ever become digital. In fact, um, I, I belong to the last generation of apartheid babies, the last generation in the sense that the first time I was old enough to participate in an election in South Africa was the first democratic election in South Africa, and so the old system was flushed out and the new system was flushed in. But the apartheid uh, regime, for all of its monstrosity and for all of its tyranny, was not a stupid regime. And um, in retrospect, um, I've realized that I learned a couple of very important lessons from the apartheid re regime, as awful as that may sound. 
The apartheid regime knew and understood very clearly the potential power of the media, of the mainstream media, and for that reason was very careful to avoid giving people access to the media. South African, uh, South African homes got television in 1976, and the reason for that late arrival of television into the domestic context was that the government figured out that if people had access to television, we might begin to understand better what was going on in the country, and that might lead to some kind of uprising. So that, um, you know, that sense that was imbricated in me from an early age, that the me media has a, a potential beyond entertainment to convey values, to speak um, of conventional values and, and of political reason or, or unreason in the case of the South African context, was something which, which I think I carried with me when I left South Africa. The other thing that the South African government was very good at it's bizarre, but I, I do realize that I did learn, um, I, I call it negative learning, when you don't like things and you learn from them anyway. Um, you know, the other thing that the South African government understood very clearly was the good old-fashioned uh, divide and rule um, policy, which I think is, is common to most dictatorial regimes. In other words, one of the things that they realized beyond the obvious knowledge that we all have that South Africans were separated racially, one of the most powerful things that the apartheid government did to enforce apartheid was to divide people linguistically. So South Africa had 11 languages, two of them were European, English and Afrikaans, and nine of them were indigenous African languages, Zulu, Zulu Sutu, Tswana, there were this, uh, nine indigenous African languages. And the apartheid government realized that it would be a good idea if people weren't able to communicate across those linguistic uh, boundaries. So, People from different linguistic groups were sent to different schools, um, employed in different institutions, and obviously, you know, if when you're walking uh, down the street or experiencing yourself in public space, your fellow South Africans are around you, talking, communicating with one another, and you can't even understand, you know, nine or ten of the languages that are being spoken by your fellow countrymen or countrywomen. That's a pretty good way to ensure that people are less likely to get together and, and do something to, to encourage change. So, I guess um, the possible violence, the possible damage that language can do, the force of language, the fact that language is not necessarily a transparent quality which just brings people together, but that it can also be a very divisive, very destructive process was, was, I suppose, the second lesson that I took with me when I left South Africa. The other sort of early lesson, um, you'll see where I'm going with this later, you have to bear with me. The other early lesson um, that I learned, I think, was from, from Betamax, or you guys said Betamax, okay, it was from Betamax, um, and this is all, these are all things that I've understood in retrospect, I mean, I wasn't sitting in South Africa in 19... 74, having all of these kinds of, of ruminations. But um, when we finally got a, a video machine in our home, which I think was around 1980, that video recorders finally became available in South Africa, um, what was so interesting about the video machine was the way it created the possibility for you as a viewer to recreate the viewing experience. So I remember my brother and I as you know, sort of kids watching videos, and if there was a good scene, you would rewind and watch it again. If it got boring, you'd hit fast forward. If you were a teenage boy and you thought you might be able to catch a glimpse of a bad race, you'd hit pause. And so 
as you sort of were watching movies, movies on using your video recorder, you no longer were forced to accept the sort of beginning, middle, end structure and to have the whole structure projected onto you. But finally, you know, for the first time, there was an opportunity to engage with the medium and to edit your experience, to to decide on how you wanted to na navigate your experience. Um, of that um, medium. So anyway, fast forward now, I, I didn't understand any of those lessons, I didn't benefit from them for quite some time. I went to a very traditional art school where I learned how to paint and draw um, and then had the opportunity to study in the United States around 1994 I came over. And one of the things that was so alienating and interesting about leaving South Africa and coming to the United States was realizing how very little I had in common with my peers, uh, the peers that I was meeting, American peers, Mexican peers, European peers, you know, coming from such a different historical and social background. I looked like I could be a European kid or an American kid, but in fact, in all other respects, my experience was very, very different. And what I came to realize, um, this is rather kind of a dark realization, but I think a true one, was that all that I really had in common with the people I was meeting was the fact that we had all consumed a steady diet of um, you know, mainstream American uh, um, television, movies, uh, pop music, that we had all been consumers of the same meal for the vast majority of our lives. And so if there was something that we shared, if there were shared memories, then that shared memory might be the memory of having a crush on Brad Pitt at the age of 14 or a memory of a television series that we had all been addicted to. And beyond that, there wasn't much. And that kind of got me thinking about whether it might be possible to hijack that lingua franca, that common language, whether it might be possible to treat that as um, a, a commonly held you know, collection of memories, a reservoir of memories, a reservoir of experiences, which no matter how banal or superficial they may at times seem, have within them the potential to conjure up memory, to remind one of particular experiences, whether it might be possible to um, embrace that archive, rewrite that archive in some respect, mediate it, filter it, and somehow become active within it, rather than simply absorbing it and accepting um, the usually quite predictable, usually quite conservative values that were embedded within it, and which have you know, typically been relayed in a one-way fashion, once it's passively and absorbs and doesn't often have the opportunity to talk back. And so in a way, in a simplistic way, I guess that so much of what I do is an attempt to try and find a space from which to talk back, from which to turn um, a medium which tends to be monologic, at least pre-YouTube. I think that now with YouTube there are in fact lots of you know, new platforms by means of which to engage with this medium. Um, but even, my, even the works of mine which look very youtube were made long before YouTube. So, um, whether it might be possible to create a space from which uh, to collaborate with and to consider a relationship with the media as a dialogue or a collaboration rather than just a reception and an, and an absorption. 
So, um, for the sake of nostalgia, I think I'm going to start tonight by showing you um, a few clips from the work which I showed when Anne invited me to do an exhibition at the New Museum in 2000. It's, um, it's always such a pleasure to have an ongoing relationship with the curator. It doesn't feel like a one-night stand. It feels like you're developing ideas together and, and you know, it's, in, in, in cases where it works well, it's an ongoing conversation and, and a very rich one in the case of my relationship with Anne. So I'm going to start with showing you some clips from a work called the Babel series. Um, I am going to have to work a little bit to get you to understand the relationship between the various channels of video because I typically do work with multi-channel video. Um, the Babel series came about because I was invited to participate in the Istanbul Biennial in 1999. And um, that invitation came at more or less the time when I was sort of pondering the question, uh, as, as many artists must, of what it means to show your work all over the world. What does it mean to take an existing work and to travel with that work to places that might be as different as Istanbul and New York and Johannesburg and Caracas and, and Reykjavik? How do you reconcile the fact that the work is always the same work, but that the people who are coming to look at the work may have very different experiences of the world, very different relationships to language and culture? And of course, um, as, as may be obvious to you, my answer to that question was to, to take as my starting point a culture which was familiar to people who may be different in all other respects, to work with images which would immediately open the door um, to create a sort of familiarity by using references to popular culture, which I then hopefully hijack and, and move in an entirely different direction. So in order to, to prepare um, the Babel series, the work which I'll be showing you first, I sat and I watched a lot of archival MTV footage and I thought that what I would try to do was to create a very, very basic primal vocabulary. What happens when you strip away all the seduction of the pop song, when you take up the narrative, when you take up the message and just strip it down to very, very basic units of language? So, you know, I would take something like Madonna's video, Papa Don't Preach, and strip it down to just the pa, and end up with a very, very simple loop. Pa, 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 pa. Or Freddie Mercury singing, uh, Mama, from Bohemian Rhapsody. Strip it down and end up with nothing more than the Mama, 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 Mama. And basically what I was looking for was a language before language, a language that exists before language becomes Greek or German or Turkish, a language which we all share in common, just the sounds which are the potential for language, the mama, dada, kaka, fafa, all that stuff that comes out of your mouth before you can actually make a sentence, thinking that somehow this may be a way to reach, this is an old avant-garde trick by the way which 20th century artists experimented with a lot and in a way this was my tribute to figures like Klebnikov and Rochenko who had sought you know, the minimal structures beneath um, that which makes us different from each other. And I wanted to put them in dialogue with each other. What makes it a little bit less um, purist, I suppose, than the attempts um, of some of my artistic predecessors to find a primal language is the fact that this primal language comes to you through Madonna or Freddie Mercury or Sting or Prince, suggesting perhaps that all language, no matter how primal, no matter how babble-like and childlike, 
life these days is to some extent mediated through our experience of that kind of web of media which we all live in in, in urban context. So the Babel series, um, when it was shown at the New Museum in New York, looked like this. You had seven channels of video playing simultaneously, very, very loud. And as is the case with so many of my works, you pretty much are the mixing this. I like the fact that what I offer to you is several channels, which I then hope that you will mix as you move through the space, as you decide on your relationship to the different channels. So there's always the option either to approach a monitor and to hear one voice sounding, or to step back or find a position in the middle of the monitors and to experience them as a community of voices, or you know, a little bit like a number of instruments sounding in an orchestra. Unfortunately, it's very hard to recreate that experience, so I'm going to just give you a little taste of the individual loops. Like, I mean, now, now all you have to do is imagine all seven of those channels playing simultaneously, very, very loud, and you got it. Um, uh, I suppose this was really, in a way, my search for an ABC, my search for a starting point, my attempt to find my language as a video artist. And so it's kind of always fun for me to start by showing you how I start to work my way in, into the particular way that I work with the medium. Um, the next piece that I'd like to show you is a piece that I made a couple of years later. And again, my starting point was what I call lowest common denominator culture, the culture which we all share, culture which kind of levels us. And I decided that there's nothing more leveling, there's nothing that levels the playing field more than a good soppy love song, a good sentimental love song. So um, the research for, for this piece, which is called Four Duets, involved us into a lot of very, very shocking love songs. Because what fascinated me was the way, no matter what was going on in popular culture, no matter what fashions came and went, it seemed to me that you could always find a sentimental love song in the top ten. And I wanted to think about that and what it might mean, because, you know, I'm of a school who believes that 40 billion people can't be completely wrong. So I'm always interested in... Um, I'm always in culture which has such a kind of mass following, it's pretty much um, often the starting point for my work. So what I did was to try and find, over a period of four, four decades, you know, more or less half a century, to do my little um, analysis of the love song. I wanted to isolate or to choose one love song for each decade which I thought was representative of its times. And so I ended up choosing the Carpenter song, um, Close to You, um, from the late 60s. From the 70s, it was Olivia Newton-John singing Hopelessly Devoted to You in Greece. That's the first movie I ever saw. Um, from the 80s, it was a little bit more funky-punky. It was Annie Lennox singing Thorn in, in My Side. And from the 90s, the Uber Diva of the song, of course, was Whitney singing I Will Always Love You. And um, what these songs seemed to have in common, because 
It might sound, sound a little bit perplexing, but I do consider myself to be a minimalist. I identify much more with, with minimalism than I do with pop, although I'm popularly called pop artist. Um, what I'm really interested in is not so much the excess and, and the elaboration and the detail, but more the core, more the elements that are at the heart and, and the basic elements which structure a phenomenon. And so in a sense, I'm always looking for those structures. And what do all love songs have in common? Of course, all love songs are about an I and a you, a me and a you. And I think that this probably is, is a strong clue to why they are, you know, do have a consistent popularity over time. One always has the possibility with a love song to interpolate oneself into the I and the you. So when you're heartbroken, sometimes you become the, the I. When you when somebody just left you, you become the you in a particular love song. You feel the way into that song and you sing of your pain, I will survive. How could you leave me this way? You become the I of the you in that song. Um, so anyway, I thought, well, if that's the case, why don't we just do away with all of the other stuff, which isn't that important? Um, and I, I uh, created four installations. I actually wanted to start with Annie here, and basically just to tell you what my formal strategy was. In the case of each of these love songs, I took them into editing software and edited the song twice. I think you've probably sort of already worked your way to the punchline. In the case of the first edit, I would keep only um, the personal pronoun now referring to myself. So if Annie sang an I or me or my, I would hold on to those bits of the footage and throw away absolutely everything else. Then I, once I had my I loop, what I call my I loop, I would start the editing process again, and this time keeping only the you, 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 and you. So there's no cheating involved. You know, this is what Solver would have done if he was born 50 years later. It was a little machine, it was a little engine, an idea which um, drove the formal um, structure of the book and which made decisions for me about what I should keep and what I should throw away. And so I ended up with an I loop and a you loop. And what happens when you experience this work is you walk into a long, thin room and it's a little bit like watching tennis. I, you, you, I, you, you. And you're caught somewhat. You are the person who's caught in this somewhat masturbatory loop. Master masturbatory in the sense that the I and the you are the same person in this loop. And you uh, are, I guess, asked to figure out your relationship, you know, how, how to relate to this IU structure, which is so, um, so constitutive for the love song. So that's what double Annie looked like when it was installed. Here is double Karen, double Olivia, and double Whitney, of course. Um, I'm going to show you a little bit of the footage. It seems like Whitney is <laughs> determined to be first. So this is all, as, as you remember, there's a reason for all of this. I'm trying to like slowly get you to understand why I would want to do something like mother and father. And the next sort of important step in that process is um, a piece which I made called the Soliloquy Trilogy. And there's a little anecdote which I often tell when I talk about this work because it's a pretty easy way to explain to you what it was that prompted me to make the work. Um, I had been in New York for eight years and I was notoriously bad at recognizing famous people. For me, somehow it was necessary to see them on the screen. So friends would always be sort of pointing Cindy Crawford out to me and then sort of see her ass at the <laughs> I just wasn't capable of, of sort of recognizing famous people. 
However, one day while sitting in a coffee shop in Lower Manhattan, I did look out the window and managed to spot Al Pacino. Um, and what was interesting about that was not the fact that it was Al Pacino. Al Pacino is flesh and blood, like all of us. But what was interesting about it and beautiful about it was the slow um, choreography which was developing around Pacino. Because Pacino, of course, was completely relaxed and just well, I guess, walking down the street rather naturally in real time with the body and doing his thing. But everybody around Pacino had gone into a very strange, balletic slow motion as they um, put down their cell phones to stare at him, approached him from autograph as passengers and cabs asked their cabs to slow down so that they could look out the window. And it seemed to me as if there were these sort of two parallel realities operating alongside each other. This one larger-than-life, real-time figure moving through a kind of strange composition which was, was unfurling in slow motion. And I thought to myself that that was rather a, an interesting <coughs> metaphor for um, the difference in our experience of time as mere mortals or people who don't exist on the silver screen, as opposed to the experience of time which we know from the silver screen. So as you live your way through your day, you experience your time second, second, minute for minute, hour for hour, you have to blow your nose, you have to make sandwiches for the kids before they go to school, sometimes you have to squeeze a pimple, all those kinds of ugly inconveniences. Whereas on the big screen, a whole lifetime, 90 years, 150 years, can be compressed into 90 minutes. People wake up with full and perfect makeup on. They're larger than life, they're perfect. All of the weird stuff is edited out, all of the icky stuff is edited out. And there's a very different, um, there's a very different um, structure of time there, which, which suggests an omnipresence, which suggests um, a much more powerful form of being than that which we experience in our everyday lives, which may partially account for the aura of Hollywood movies, this kind of notion of perfection, a perfection which is not familiar to us from our everyday lives. Um, at the same time, I, I think I was at the time, as Anne mentioned, writing a PhD on Warhol, which I never quite managed to finish. I never wrote the last chapter, which my Jewish father will never forgive me for, but I managed to move along. Um, anyway, um, you know, Warhol said something which, which I thought was interesting. He said um, that people don't go to the movies, I'm talking about mainstream cinema here, they don't go to the movies, uh, you know, for a story or for the, for, to, for the detail, they go to see the stars. And that's why for mainstream cinema it's so important to have the star as a vehicle. You can't hire unknown actors. The movies are carried by the stars. When you see a Hollywood movie, you pretty much know that the, the good guy is going to get the girl. You know there's going to be a sequel. There, there's certain structures of predictability which mean that you don't have to work very hard. But the sort of aura of the star, I believe, is what keeps people coming back time and time again for more. And so again, in that same kind of... Uh, um, way of approaching the media that I already suggested to you when I showed you the four duets, I was interested in taking that as a challenge and in asking myself quite literally, what would it mean to be given what you wanted? What would it mean to get rid of everything else in the movie, all of those other inconveniences, you know, and to be left with nothing but pure, unadulterated stuff? And so I made three movies um, in which I attempted to do this. I'm going to show you a short clip tonight from the first one, which is called Soliloquy Sharon, which is my answer to basic instinct. And essentially I decided 
that I would just give you Sharon. I mean, that's what people wanted out of me. So I thought, you know, let's get rid of the rest of the stuff. And so if Sharon, during basic instinct, talks, shrieks, sighs, screams, if she makes absolutely any vocal sound whatsoever, then I've kept that in my version. Again, it's chronological, it's driven by the idea of the work rather than by some kind of subjective decision-making process. And everything else got thrown away. Um, to my astonishment, um, Sharon Stone's entire vocal time on the screen during uh, Best Instinct boils down to 7 minutes and 11 seconds, um, which I must admit I didn't expect. Um, and let me show you, I won't show you the whole 7 minutes 11 seconds, I'll just show you a short clip of this movie. Um, so. This one is presented, I take it off the screen, chop it up and then put it back on the screen. So it's usually shown as a projection, which means I don't have to explain the whole thing to you, it's great. This is my favorite work because it never gives me any headaches when I show it. <laughs> I just send the DVD. <laughs> Um, but basically, I, I think, you know, what I started out to explore here was, was not only this kind of condensed star presence, the, the, the over-reality of the star on the screen, the discrepancy between our experience of, of time and our experience of the world versus how reality is um, represented on the screen, um, but also our, our cinematic memory, our relationship to cinema. What do you and don't you remember if you have seen the film before? To what extent are you capable of filling in the gaps? To what extent is a seven-minute seven film capable of carrying the narrative of a 90-minute film? Does it make a difference whether you've seen the movie or not? All of those kinds of questions. And you'll notice that there are often black gaps in the movies, which I suppose stand in for the presence of the viewer. Those are the parts where Sharon's voice is there, but she's not on the screen. So I've simply dropped in a black screen to create a space where you left alone. Um, usually we show this um, with surround speakers, so you're very much wrapped in this voice of Sharon and left with the question of what does it mean to be given what, you know, what producers in Hollywood think that you want? What does it mean to be given nothing but pure, pure star value? But in the process of making this work, other questions came up for me because um, I wouldn't consider myself, you know, a hardcore Marxist, but it did seem interesting to me that seven, and seven minutes of vocal presence could earn somebody like Sharon Stone a salary of seven or eight million dollars versus what most of the people who I know, what they earn for an hour of labor. And so it did start to raise me a question of what that kind of inflation means, that inflation of somebody's presence, that inflation of labor. What, what does it mean to earn seven million dollars for seven minutes of work? And um, perhaps even more interestingly for me was the question of where is that excess coming from? Where is that, that huge inflation coming from? And I think that um, the answer is from us. Well, maybe I should say certainly from me, probably from some of you. The people who go to movies, people who watch TV, people who buy magazines, people who in one way or in many complex ways participate in this culture, thereby contributing that economy, thereby making it possible for that kind of inflation and that kind of um, salary to be possible. And so to me that structure was familiar. It reminded me of the stock market. It reminded me of what it means to be a small shareholder in uh, you know, Apple or in Pepsi or whatever the case may be. You buy a few shares for a couple of thousand dollars 
you have the right to go to the shareholders meeting. I don't know anyone who does. I think we're pretty freaky to do that. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, theoretically, you could show up. You could own, you could own five hundred dollars worth of petty shares. You could go to the shareholders meeting, and you could have a say in the class of vote for issues that affect that corporation. And so it seemed to me that there was something going on. It seemed to me that we, as uh, participants in that culture, as viewers of those movies, to some extent needed to be considered as shareholders in Hollywood Inc. And it seemed to me that that should entitle us at some level, in some way, to have a say in the way that company is run, to have a say in what the employers, uh, the employees of that company, uh, how they executed their jobs. And so I came to see people like Sharon Stone, Jack Nicholson, Madonna, all of these people who I had invested in as somehow being, to some extent, employed by me and, and everybody else who were contributing to that economy. And therefore, so I just think that I'd like to have a little bit more of a say in what's going on, and, and I thought it would be interesting to, to reflect on whether it was possible to execute my shareholders' rights a little bit. And this is where I get back to mother and father, because as you can see from these three examples that I've given you, I was thinking for a long time about to what extent it might be possible to liberate very familiar footage um, from contexts where it usually appears, to what extent it might be possible to get it to tell a different story, um, to get it to have different layers of meaning, to perhaps um, exorcise the subconscious of that material, to take things which might be buried within that culture and to bring them to the surface. Um, and with Mother and Father, I finally um, came up with an idea and after a few years finally managed to raise a budget which would allow me to take that logic to an almost perverse extreme. So to literally cut actors out of their movies, to literally frame by frame uh, tear them out of their movies. If the actress is in the kitchen, throw away the kitchen. If the actress is at the beach, throw away the beach. Kidnap them and get them to engage in what I call involuntary performance, performing for me without having any knowledge of performing for me. And to ask whether it might be possible to take bits of speech um, which are very familiar to you and to get them to tell a different story. Um, mother and father formally has its roots in that kind of exploration which I've been conducting for several years. But I think in terms of the content um, relates to another, uh, another thing which I think about a lot, which is to what extent our experience of this uh, mainstream media culture influences the, our coming into being as subjects, our experiences of ourselves as individuals. To what extent do we base decisions about our lifestyles, about our choice of partners, about our relationship to the world on our experience of the media? And it does seem to me, obviously this is uh, you know, an opinion rather than a necessary truth, but it does seem to me that particularly for younger generations, we are uh, learning our values by watching TV, by going to the movies. All the things you used to learn from immediate family, you know, in the past, you learn how to vote, how to flirt, where to go to church, what party to vote for, pretty much by studying your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your grandma and, and your grandmother and grandfather. And I think that more so and more so, all of those life lessons, all of those ways of learning who we are, um, you know, for better or worse, are coming through that screen experience. 
And so, um, at the bottom of mother and father, of this rather complex editing exercise, lay this rather simple question. If, indeed, we are being raised by the media increasingly, then what might that media mother look like? What might that media father look, look like? And I suppose I'm going to avoid saying too much more about mother and father because I thought that maybe since um, some of you have seen the work, we could pick up on that, um, you know, in, in the question time if you want to. But I think one thing that's really dangerous about hearing artists speak about their work is that it's, they, they like to convince you that they have the truth of the work. They like to convince you that they have the, the key to, to the understanding of the work. And of course, the artists, um, the artist's feel about their work is only one story about the work. And I want to leave you with your experience of mother and father and not, not go too much into that.